I will trust Brexit Focus with Paul Goslin and Jared Dean. Welcome to the Hollywell Brexit Focus podcast. My name is Jared Dean, and as always, I'm joined by Paul Gosling. Paul, great to see you. And you, Jared. So, this is the 12th in our series. This month's episode, we're going to have a conversation about Brexit developments, and a lot's happened since our last podcast. So, we're going to be looking at the withdrawal agreement and the framework for the future relationship that has just been released at the end of this month. And we're also going to have a number of interviews, including one with Eamon McCann. First, Paul. We've got loads of substantial stuff to talk about this month. The the most obvious of which was the withdrawal agreement, the 500-plus page document that was released. Where are we with? Well, it's first of all important to put this in context because really we are at the end of the easy bit. It might not have mm. sounded very easy while you <laughs> heard what was going on in Brussels, but really all we've agreed so far in draft form is the terms on which the UK leaves the European Union. And so that's the withdrawal agreement. And what it says is that there will, over the interim period, still be membership by the UK of the customs union. Mm -hmm. And it's almost as if we are still within the European Union, even though we leave in March. So there'll still be a relationship, but there'll be a closer relationship in Northern Ireland than the rest of the UK. And that means that even after we leave the EU, Northern Ireland will still be tied not only to the customs union, but also to the single market. Now, the other thing which the withdrawal agreement spells out very clearly is that Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK is still tied with the Irish Republic in terms of the common travel area. Yeah. Uh, so that is not affected. So there will be a continuing right for people who are Irish citizens to live and work in the UK and for UK citizens, whether they are Irish citizens as well or not, to continue to work or live in the Irish Republic. So none of that is affected. So that continues as it was before. Okay. And similarly, there's also a commitment within the withdrawal agreement to honour both the Good Friday Agreement and the additional agreements, the St Andrews Agreement and the Fresh Start Agreement, on top of that. So all those things continue as before, and they spelled out in the withdrawal agreement. We've also just had the framework for the future relationship, basically the template of how negotiations are going to go forward, just released as well. How's that looking, and what's the time frame on that? Well, yes, we're, this is the more complicated stuff in mm. terms of the future trade and political relationships. Now, clearly, the trade negotiations can only formally begin once the UK has left the European Union. So that basically formally can only begin in March of next year, 2019. Now, as things stand, the agreement is that there will be a transition period that ends at the end of December 2020. Mm -hmm. However, the European Commission has offered that, if necessary, that interim agreement, that process of withdrawing, can continue until the end of 2022. Now, the interesting thing is that the future relationship hints broadly that we will continue to be very closely aligned with the European Union in trading terms, mm. so that we will continue to be, abide by EU regulations, we will continue to abide by the customs system, uh, so it will look very similar but there will not be freedom of movement of individuals. Yeah. There will be a visa system, not for visiting other places. That will still be free as it currently is if you're going on holiday elsewhere. But for people to work here, there will be equality, if you like, between people who are EU residents or citizens and people from other parts of the, country, uh, other parts of the world, such yeah. as India or Australia. So you will have a new visa system for working here. And probably the UK will still need a lot of migrant workers after it leaves the EU. So that broadly is 
how it's shaping up for the future. We will continue to have a very close relationship with the EU. The one exception that people will be unhappy about is that the signs are that the European Health Insurance Certificate system would not continue. So okay. the EHIC cards, used to be called the E111s, they, there's no mention of those. So it looks as if those will not apply. However, there is a mention to two EU funding schemes, which is the Peace Plus and also Interreg, and it looks as if those will continue after we leave the European Union, and mm. also that there will be a continuing relationship with the European Investment Bank, which means opportunities for infrastructure investment from the EU coming into Northern Ireland even after we leave the EU. The economic impact of Brexit then, there's already been signs that it has had an impact. Paul, what's the economic impact of Brexit been so far? Yeah, it's a good question, actually, Gerard, because although although we have not left the European Union, we have had the, some of the impacts of leaving the European Union. Ever since the UK decided that it was going to leave the EU, there's been less investment coming in than otherwise would have been, and the growth in the economy has slowed down. So it's still grown, but not at the rate it was before. Anyway, John Campbell, who is the business and economic editor for the BBC in Northern Ireland, gives us an overview here. So it's the biggest thing you would hear from employers is around access to migrant labour. Um, and it's not just, I think it wasn't this summer, but the summer before, the, 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 what I heard was people saying, a lot of our workers went home for their summer holidays and they just did not come back. Um, and you hear that particularly in the agri-food sector and then also probably in, in more um, skilled or, or semi-skilled manufacturing jobs. So that, so that is something that the business lobby organisations have been completely upfront about, that they have found getting that migrant labour much more difficult. And, and the big thing we should remember is all the growth in employment in Northern Ireland during the recovery has come from EU migrants all of it in net terms as EU migrants so that, that's why that's been a concern for business the other thing, it's harder to see in the data, what you've heard anecdotally and maybe you see in the, the UK data is about investment intentions so are people who have money going to deploy that, are they going to invest in new machinery, property, whatever are they just going to hold on to that money and sit tight until they wait to see what happens certainly um, some people in the property sector would tell me they have known of deals which would have should have happened but didn't happen because people would say I'll just wait and see until I know exactly what the lie of the land is going to be here. And the data does suggest that the economy seemed to slow down in terms of its growth from the data that breaks the decision. Yeah, now in, in terms of Northern Ireland itself quarter to quarter data can be a little bit noisy but certainly the trend that we have seen of, of, of slow growth has, has continued. Um, you know, you, you could read that into the data to say growth has, has slowed and you can correlate that to the, the Brexit-related uncertainty. In the last month, Jard, Kurt Hubner, uh, a recognised international expert on the economy, gave a presentation on the impact of Brexit on the economy of Northern Ireland. And also, controversially, he argued the case for why Brexit means that it's even more attractive to have Irish reunification in economic terms. All the data that are available show that since the referendum in June 2016, uh, the overall performance of the UK economy, including Northern Ireland, is negative. So 
means uh, the recovery processes, uh, productivity data, foreign direct investment data are still positive, but the growth rates have come down enormously. means there's already this kind of uncertainty in all the problems included with the referendum that are holding down the dynamics of the UK economy as such, including Northern Ireland. What our report is then doing, uh, we are looking into what would be the implications for of three scenarios. The scenario of uh, a hard Brexit, the scenario of a of Northern Ireland staying in the common market as well as the customs union and unification. Northern Ireland joining the Republic of Ireland. Those are the three scenarios. And then we have the, the, the benchmark that is the business as usual. If there would be no referendum at all, how would those economies have developed? And uh, in this case, the, 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 the economies of Northern Ireland and, the North, and Northern Ireland and the Republic would have developed positively and are kind of uh, following the historical pathway. Now, comes Brexit hard, then it's pretty obvious this is the worst of all worlds. Uh, it comes with high costs, particularly for the Republic of Ireland in absolute terms. Uh, in absolute terms, the costs for uh, Northern Ireland are smaller, but still significantly high. They will be felt hardly. And this is the kind based on a kind of moderate and very modest kind of modeling when it comes to the Brexit effects. Uh, the backstop of the European Union favored so far, at least, that Northern Ireland would stay in the single market and the customs union. Uh, that's a better world than the hard Brexit, but still a world that comes with negative costs. They are relatively small, but it's not the kind of uh, situation uh, we could uh, describe as optimum. The best of all worlds under conditions of uh, Brexit is unification uh, with the strongest positive effects. That's only actually the only uh, available scenario so far that comes with positive effects at all. So this tells us, if you think about in terms of policy choices, if you go for whatever reasons, political reasons, or for an inferior model, this comes for an in, uh, inferior uh, option and scenario, this comes with high opportunity costs you have to take into consideration. And uh, this hopefully is helping, this kind of uh, contribution is helping to bring a bit more rationality in this kind of debate about the future of Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland under conditions of Brexit. In, in, the, in case of the, 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 the kind of soft and hard Brexit, we would probably, under a modeling assumption, not go into recession, but we would stay for quite a long time on a much lower growth rate. It means we are not using the opportunities that we are in place. We are actually under utilizing them and that's the, the kind of the, the, the main impact so when there was this debate after referendum uh, a lot of uh, people are saying this will create a huge crisis in the UK uh, actually a vast majority of scholars didn't say that uh, I also didn't say this either but it was pretty clear it will have negative effects on the growth dynamic and the UK including Northern Ireland moved another lowest growth path of all G7 countries and think about it given the fact that Northern Ireland is always on the kind of bottom inside the the, the, the UK, this has also very negative effects on an already very kind of economically damaged region that you are now part of a growth regime that is uh, very much inferior compared to a situation pro, uh, uh, pre-Brexit. The Highwell Podcast Brexit Focus funded by the Community Foundation of Northern Ireland's Brexit Dialogue Fund. Download this program and stream it for free on SoundCloud.com, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher.com. Subscribe, listen, share and enjoy. Eventually, we've got our first pro-Brexit politician who's agreed to come on our podcast. You had an interview with Eamon McKeon. What was Eamon saying? 
Eamon McCann, people bought for profit. And of course, Eamon says he's not simply pro-Brexit, he's also pro-Irexit. Basically, he doesn't believe in the European Union. And Eamon explains why. No, well, I actually think that our position uh, is, well, vindicated is the wrong word, everybody says that in, po- in politics, but that it's become uh, more relevant. Is that, to be honest, we don't like using the word Brexit. Brexit is British exit, and we think that there should be an exit for Northern Ireland and an exit for the South, and we should come out together. So, which is where the slogan, well, we had two slogans. One was in or out, the fake was on, and it was out of the UK, out of the EU. Not the same as Boris Johnson and people. Well, my objection to the EU is as strong as ever. It's a bit stronger now because I think that the Republic of Ireland has been drawn now deeper sort of into sort of the whole EU project as understood by Macron and Barnier and these people. The EU stood by sort of the uh, Republic. Let nobody make any mistake. The Republic is now stuck with the EU. And, for example, when we move forward a bit more with Frontex, the, uh, the border guard uh, a force of the EU... I mean, if the Republic were to say, no, we don't want to be part of that, or we don't want to be part of the European Army, or whatever it is. Michel Barnier is a passionate advocate of a a European Army, and a European Army with a mandate to intervene abroad. Now, he said this, interestingly enough, sort of the European Security Conference, which was held on the same day as he talked to the dog in Dublin. It was in the morning, it was in Berlin, the European Security Conference. And his speech there, which is on the net, is well worth reading. It has a, it makes one unexpected point. It says that one of the good things about the United Kingdom leaving I think, is that they had been the main barrier to a European army, that they wouldn't integrate. Now, of course, the United Kingdom wasn't doing that for progressive reasons. They were doing it because many of them, then the government still have dreams of imperial grandeur, grandeur, we are not going to be subject ourselves to these European soldiers giving our guys uh, 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 orders. But it was pretty interesting that he said sort of that they would get it through more quickly. And I believe that if the Republic of Ireland were to come along and say, wait a minute, we're neutral, and you know, we're not joining a European army, we're certainly not intervening abroad, a uh, European army, they'd be told to bugger off. So didn't we you know, deliver all this uh, uh, to you and stood by you at the time of the Brexit? No, you deliver for us. That's something that people, particularly in the South, should consider. For a lot of people, uh, the main concern about Brexit is about the economy. For other people, it's about rights. In terms of the economy, I mean, we've had a, a slowdown in growth, so there's been less income for people yep. as a result. I mean, is that something that uh, you feel in any way responsible for? Responsible for? No, we don't feel responsible for anything. That that's embarrassing. So, and we, after all, we have no illusions about ourselves. I mean, we're a small organisation, sort of in Northern Ireland. As far as the UK is concerned, we were an All Ireland party. But, that, that, but of course, I mean, the, the exit or left exit. I yeah. mean, that would that would have tipped the balance between one way or the other on yeah. the referendum. Well, I mean, you have to be realistic about these things, and you have to tell the truth about how things worked. A, the exit movement, if you like, never got off the ground. Really, sort of, uh, uh, including in England, where it should have worked because they had as left, so it's a major union. You had left wing Labour MPs, Dennis Skinner, for example, uh, talking, this taking what was Tony Benn's sort of line, sort of in relation uh, to the EU. It never got off the ground, it never got any resonance. Uh, that's partly our own fault. I mean, it's sort of, uh, uh, we didn't run a single meeting, sort of, we had one, ran one debate sort of in Derry about it. We never knocked on our door. Incidentally, neither did, I think, did any party apart from uh, the SDLP actually knock on doors. Certainly Sinn Féin didn't, for all their blowing about us now. We didn't run a campaign at all. And partly that was because we sort of assumed that Romain was going to win. And in terms of where we are now, we don't know, of course, what Theresa May's proposal is going to lead to. I mean, it could 
arguably lead to the outcome that she wants, which is that the UK stays within the customs union. Uh-huh. Northern Ireland, in effect, stays within the single market as well. But it equally makes it more likely that there'll be a no-deal outcome, uh-huh. which could mean hard borders. Now, you and yeah. people before Profit have said there should be resistance oh, if there absolutely. are hard borders. Can you explain how that resistance would work? It, there is a hard border, which would mean sort of checks on... Uh, people going up and down sort of uh, across the border and checks particularly on goods of course mm. going on which would be very disruptive uh, particularly for businesses and particularly for small businesses along the border so I don't think that there would be in that situation they're making a forecast and I might be totally wrong about this that there would be great difficulty I think they would be wide open the organising along the border border communities you know the last time there was a, you know a very hard border during the troubles sort of when there were closed off uh, you know the unapproved roads and sort of there were army checkpoints uh, quite big army checkpoints on the approved roads and all that you know, people did tear down sort of the uh, barriers on the on the unapproved roads I think that people would tear any customs with their bare hands and I hope that they would do I hope we could organise that because I have no doubt in my mind that if they put installations there and particularly they put personnel in there. And remember, the chief constable has talked about, and what was it, 400 or 1,000 or something extra police? Something like that. And people talk in, in England I mean, quite openly, sort of, about maybe the possibility of soldiers being there. They're mad, mad. There's maybe very few things that we can predict with great confidence uh, about this. But one thing we can predict is that they put up visible border posts or border checks uh, or whatever, and there's personnel manning them as they're staffing them, as it would have to be. People are going to shoot at them. There's no question about that. And I think that there's no stomach at all in Northern Ireland in any community for a resumption of armed struggle and retaliation from armed struggle and all that goes on. I think that that's got no support and we're not going to have a return. One of the things that's interesting, of course, is that the people who are most strongly advocating Brexit, are, many of them are also people that very strongly oppose the Good Friday Agreement. Mm. Now, for very different reasons, you also oppose yes, the Good Friday Agreement yes. because you regard it as a sectarian settlement. And I, I mean, think we've been vindicated <laughs> in, in relation to that. Anybody who doubts that the Good Friday Agreement was a sectarian thing is not looking the reality in the face. But anyway... I think if, if you I could think, argue, though, that it has helped to cement peace yeah. within within Northern Ireland, it has helped to cement peace. Of course, it has. One of the reasons for that is that Sinn Féin supported the agreement and therefore had to get. I mean, it took them a few years to do it, but had to get the ARA out of the picture. But you're right. You know, sort of at least it was the Good Friday Agreement. It presented a peaceful way forward. My point was that it presented it presented a peaceful way forward, which would involve the two communities in constant and eternal conflict with one another. Because and that's. We see that now. I mean, sort of, you've got uh, uh, the breakdown of uh, government in Northern Ireland, and the basic reason for it is that here you've got two parties with diametrically opposed objectives. You know, a United Ireland or consolidation with them. I mean, these are not uh, uh, reconcilable. We say, what are we going to do about that? The only way that that is really going to be solved is by sort of an upsurge of, you know, of things sort of north and south. You see, if you look at the things north and south, things have changed. You got, for example, over the last couple of years, we've seen the women of Ireland going on the war path, north and south, on the same issues, on rape. It happens sort of in Belfast. You have rugby guys misbehaving themselves, to put it mildly, and then going for all this ferociously objectionable talk sort of on Twitter and all the rest of it. When that happened and it was exposed and the case was over, you had spontaneous demonstrations in Cork. You had spontaneous demonstrations in Belfast. 
Dundalk, Derry, here you had not sort of something that was designed to bring about a United Ireland. This was a United Ireland in action. The very simple things tell you that sort of in a way that wasn't true even 10 years ago. That, for example, you listen to Stephen Nolan's programme so in the morning, the biggest, as he said, the biggest show in the country, sort of a radio phone in programme. And listen to Joe Duffy in the afternoon, sort of an RTE, sort of the biggest phone in show in the south of Ireland. Every day, every day. We were phoning in about people, old people sort of lying on trolleys in hospitals. The same north and south. These things are the same, which they used not to be. If we could unite the struggle north and south. Now, that's why we say in or out the, the, the fight goes on, the struggle goes on. We say the basis for that is there, you know, and that could transcend uh, uh, the border. Now, one of the difficulties there is that our dear trade union movement has got no intention whatsoever sort of, of operating in an, even with an all-Ireland body. So we've got big uh, uh, problems there, but I think that that vision is the right one from a socialist point of view, and I also think that the material is there to make it a practical reality, at least in a way which we didn't have uh, uh, before. To go back to the yeah, point about yeah. the Good Friday Agreement, oh. with the Brexiteers keen to see it replaced... Mm-hmm. You are sharing criticism in a different, from a different perspective mm-hmm. of the Good Friday Agreement. What do you think will now happen to the Good Friday Agreement? The Good Friday Agreement is constitutionally secure. Can't, no one party can do it. I mean, it's laid down within the agreement. With but the, the St. Andrews Agreement, of course, yeah. did change. And yes, it did. New it Start did. also reformed yeah. it as well. And, it, and, it changed Fresh start, again. Yes. and again, a change would have to be agreed sort of by the major parties here, by Sinn Féin and the DUP, before we could change it. It's a recipe possibility of total political chaos, but not just here. It's very difficult to see how there's going to be a government formed. If May falls, which I think she is going to fall, uh, how are they going to put a government together which can have any majority in the House of Commons? Mm. You know, and we should never forget the Labour Party is a bit split on this as well. Mm. You know, how is any party, any government over there, going to be able to command a majority in the House of Commons over a long period, so most accurately to put policies? Uh, into place. I think we are faced, and not just here, we should look at this on a global basis as well. Look what's happening across Europe. Look at the fact we don't have a government in Sweden at the minute. You know, in Sweden, one of those, there's no government and they can't piece one together. When Merkel leaves sort of in Germany, we're going to have that. There's uh, constitutional questions in Spain. We got a dog's dinner of a situation uh, in Italy. You know, sort of a left-wing party, a supposedly left-wing party and a far-right party in coalition together. I mean, so all these things are falling apart, you know, and, and Northern Ireland is really a part of that, instead of the United States. But the Republican Party really sort of is in bits because uh, Donald Trump has taken over the populist angle of it, and the Democratic Party seems to be finding enormous difficulty in getting uh, a credible presidential candidate. It's difficult to see at times, I mean, how the Republican Party in the United States is going to hold together. And it's not at all certain, sort of, that with the new left-wing influx, sort of, of young people, particularly young women, sort of, into the Democratic Party, that it's not going to be a stable and viable uh, a political uh, instrument in the future. So all over the place, sort of, we've got chaos. And I think, don't rule out the possibility that the European Union itself is going to be in dire straits, sort of, over the next 10 years. And we don't have to go over to uh, Poland, Hungary, sort of parties with barbed wire down the eastern flank of the uh, uh, of the European Union to stop migrants getting in and so forth. Let's see how the, no, none of us knows. I don't know how all that's going to work out. What I do know is that we're into a new situation, and I mean, I don't wish for chaos. I don't wish for chaos. But in the sort of chaos that might that might sort of come, people think outside the box. Then and people might say, "What? Well, can we get all of Ireland out of the EU, sort of on a left wing basis?" You know. Let's try it and see. I think that would be the best outcome. But can we bring it off? 
I don't know, and I've given up making predictions about Brexit and the European Union because all my predictions so far have turned out to be wrong. The Highwell Trust podcast presents Brexit Focus. As we draw near to the UK's exit from the European Union, Paul Goslin brings monthly updates on the negotiating processes, how Brexit is affecting us in the Northwest, whilst attempting to take away some of the fear and uncertainty from the issue on the local community. Hollywell Trust Brexit Focus podcast, released on the 25th of every month. Catch up on past episodes for free on our SoundCloud page, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher.com. Search Hollywell Podcast. Great from Eamon, as always. Paul, recently we've had a conversation about rights uh, when it comes to Brexit and what rights are going to look like beyond March 19th and when we get the, the final kick on. But there was a conversation held in Hollywell between Hollywell Trust, the Northwest Community Network and the Human Rights Consortium um, about what that's going to look like. There's been a lot of concern expressed uh, by human rights uh, advocates about the potential impact of Brexit on the rights of individuals in Northern Ireland, both those who are UK citizens and all those who, also those people who have chosen Irish citizenship who were born in Northern Ireland. And as you say, Claire McCann from the Human Rights Consortium presented an explanation of the impact on rights and she gave us an interview while she was at the Hollywood Trust. In December 2017, the UK and the EU made an agreement that was the end of phase one, that was bringing us on to phase two, that was setting out the terms of of what were the commitments for the withdrawal um, arrangements subsequently. Um, In that December agreement, the UK and the EU committed to no diminution of rights in Northern Ireland. And that essentially means that there should be no lowering of human rights standards across Northern Ireland caused by Brexit. What we see in the text of the withdrawal agreement that was published in uh, March was that that principle had been written in a much more constrained way. It referred to, for example, um, those rights um, contained within a particular section of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, not all rights in Northern Ireland pursuant to the EU. So already there we see uh, a difference between what happened in December and, and what was published by the EU. And it seems now, and I've only done a brief read through of the withdrawal agreement um, that was published yesterday, that that more diluted version of rights protections was included in um, the withdrawal agreement that was published. Similarly, the principles in relation to non-discrimination were included in an annex. So that is um, set out in Annex 1 of the protocol, and the draft protocol that was published yesterday. And in that draft protocol, they include six provisions, um, six directives of EU law. And in my reading of non-discrimination provisions in EU law, they're much more extensive and many more um, different provisions could have been included um, in that annex. Now, there is a proviso that they say including these six, so it's not limited to those six, but it does suggest that there's a a limiting of what this non-diminution of rights means in practice. And you've also made the point that uh, some of the remedies that apply at present for the breaches of human rights uh, will no longer apply after we leave the EU. 
That's right. One of the things that the EU has provided for is very strong remedies in UK law. There's nothing else that can replace it or replicate it within the UK constitutional structure because the EU brought something different. One of the things that the government is looking for is regaining control of our laws and the reason for that is that the EU was supranational. That meant that it could be used to set aside an act of parliament. Um, It could also be used to provide for very strong financial penalties in different circumstances um, through going to the European Court of Justice. And what we see now is as the UK leaves the EU is that provision for UK primary legislation to be set aside is now being removed from as a possible remedy in UK law. And there's there's just no way to replicate that under the UK constitutional framework as it currently stands under the principle of parliamentary supremacy. And another point that you've made is the fact that uh, many things that we rely on within Ireland are within the common travel area. And those provisions, to the extent that they exist at all, exist within European Union law. Um, Well, perhaps not all provisions of the common travel area exist within European law, but certainly the common travel area is is often referred to as a solution to many of the rights issues in relation to cross-border living, access to education, health, etc. The problem with the common travel area as it currently exists is it's not written down anywhere. The provisions that do exist for it exist just as matters of A, domestic law within the UK or Ireland, or B, are underpinned by EU mechanisms, directives, regulations, etc. for reciprocal rights um, across the border. So what we see is a lack of legally enforceable framework for what are often referred to as common travel area safeguards. Um, The Human Rights Commission um, in Northern Ireland and uh, the Republic of Ireland have published research on this just this week, which sets out the gap between what the common, common travel area is said to do and what it actually does in practice. And if it is to have legal effect that it needs to be codified in a reciprocal basis, perhaps in a bilateral um, agreement between the UK and Ireland to really set out what it means for people so they're not confused or left in a situation of uncertainty or worse, where there's a, a gap between what they think their rights and entitlements are and what actually happens in practice. And do you feel that human rights have been given sufficient focus within the negotiations up to date? Well, our concern from the start has been that this conversation has largely been about trade and the hardening of the border and and making sure there's regulatory alignment and a shared customs union and single market. And actually, as far as we're concerned, one of the key things that the EU has provided for in Northern Ireland has been a rights framework, which underpins a lot of... I suppose the supporting mechanisms of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement and its outworkings. And I think that there hasn't been cognizance or awareness of just how much our rights are at risk in this process. And so while a lot of people have been talking about trade and single market issues, etc., which are all really important, there has perhaps been a a lack of engagement on the rights issues which are fundamental and essential to good governance in Northern Ireland. So a lot has happened on Brexit over the last month and you might find yourself now with more questions than you've ever had before. Paul's here to lend a helping hand with that. 
if you have anything burning about Brexit that you'd really like answered, you can email in to brexit.hollywelltrust.com and Paul will endeavour to answer. Or you can give us a call and they have a chat about it on 71261941. Just a reminder that you can download uh, all previous episodes of the Hollywell Brexit Focus podcast, including interviews with Antishuk Leo Veracker, with David Lennington MP, who is uh, de facto Deputy Prime Minister in the UK, and with Lord Adonis, who is leading up the People's Vote campaign. All are available through SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you access your podcasts. Keep an eye out too for the Brexit blog, written by Paul, that will appear in the Derry Journal newspaper on Friday the 23rd of November, as well as all Hollywell Trust and social media channels. Thanks to all that took part today, including Eamon McCann, John Campbell, Claire McCann and Kurt Hubner, as well as our usual thanks to Paul for his diligence and hard work, as well as to D Current for production support. Okay, talk to you all soon. You can stay up to date with us on our social media pages on Facebook, look for the Hollywell Trust, and on Twitter, it's at Hollywell T.